Well, good morning. It's uh, great to have the opportunity again to, to be up here. Thanks to Drew for um, the invitation to take part in this uh, series of uh, summer psalms. You know, there are psalms uh, really for every season of life. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed this if you've maybe read through the psalms yourself, that there are psalms where the psalmist really seems to be in big trouble and cries out for help. There are other psalms where the psalmist seems to be uh, full of, of joy and he just wants to praise and to thank the Lord. There are some psalms where he's puzzled and he, he brings questions to, to God. You know, why do the wicked prosper? Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? And there are psalms where He's aware that he's done wrong and he needs God's forgiveness and he comes and he asks for forgiveness in a a psalm like Psalm 51. And then there are other psalms which we could call psalms of confidence. Uh, And that's what we want to look at one of these this morning, Psalm 16. It is, it could be put in a category of a psalm of confidence, you know, where the psalmist comes and really expresses his strong confidence that he has in God. Probably the best known of these psalms is Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You know, he's very, very confident that God is with him and he has confidence in God. So uh, Psalm 16 is one of these psalms of confidence. So let's just read it uh, first of all. Psalm 16. Keep me safe. My God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, Or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, I was never a member of the boys' brigade. 
I know some of you were, uh, with Billy down here and Paul, and I don't know if anybody else was ever a member of the Boys' Brigade. Oh, that's right, there are others here too. Well, I never had that uh, privilege, but I did attend a few BB enrollment services in my day. And uh, at, at quite a few of them, they would sing what I think is known as the BB hymn. Uh, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? And then the chorus is, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure, the BB motto, while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. You know, there's a hymn that suggests that personal stability can only come from having right foundations. The hymn writer uh, was absolutely confident that he was safe and secure uh, with God uh, by his side. And the psalmist here has a similar sense of confidence in God. Um, if you notice, really, I suppose, in, right in the center of the psalm, verse 8 is maybe a key verse. He says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Uh, and that phrase actually comes three or four other times in the psalms. That phrase where the psalmist declares, I will not be shaken. It's a psalm of confidence. Uh, a, a, a psalm in which the uh, psalmist uh, is, is sure of his relationship with God and that no matter what happens, he is safe and secure in, in God's hands. A tremendous psalm of confidence. But how, how can we have this confidence? You know, how, how can we be strong and sure and steadfast and stable in our Christian lives. Sometimes, you know, we wobble a bit. Sometimes we can lose heart. Sometimes we can be discouraged. Sometimes we can feel like giving up. Sometimes we're not sure, really, is God really there? Does God really care about me? Does God know and understand what I'm going through? How can we say with the psalmist, I will not be shaken? I think the psalm helps us by uh, showing us three ways or three things which are, I suppose, necessary if we're going to have this stability and confidence in God. I'll tell you what they are now at the beginning, uh, in case I, you don't know when I finished. Um, but <laughs> the first one we're going to look at is commitment to God and the people of God, right? The second one is um, contentment with God uh, and his provision and counsel. And the third one is being confident uh, in God in the face of death and what is to come. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at commitment, contentment, and confidence. So try and remember those three C's. Uh, I was listening to a sermon the other day in which the uh, 
preacher said that P is the easiest letter in the alphabet if you want to do alliteration. Uh, well, I don't have any P's, but I've got three C's. Okay, commitment, contentment, and confidence. Okay, so I think, first of all, now I hope they all come from the passage that I'm not just uh, p- uh, making them up, but uh, I think they come from the passage okay. You can have a look at it and check them out uh, as we go along. So the first one I've said is commitment to God and the people of God. And we see this in verses 1 and 4, 1 through to 4. So the psalmist begins, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. So we can see here, I think, the psalmist's commitment to God and to the people of God. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about his relationship with God. He addresses God as my God. He addresses him as you are my Lord. You know, he is in this sort of personal relationship with God. He uses these personal pronouns. God is his God. God is his Lord. He, he, he does have a relationship with him. God is the most important person in his life. Uh, I take that second part of verse 2, really that's what he's saying. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I think that's his way of saying, look, you are the most important person in my life. You know, if I don't have you in my life, then everything else in comparison is worthless. You know, I I really need God in my life. If I don't have God in my life, then really I have nothing. That's what he's saying here. Um, It's really, I think, an outworking of the first commandment. You know, God had revealed himself to the people of Israel. He'd given commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the very first of those commandments was, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's what David is saying here. God, you are my God. God, you are my Lord. Uh, And if you notice in your your Bible, uh, at the beginning of verse 2, It says, I say to the Lord, Lord is in capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capitals, which is the way in which the uh, name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush is spelt. Uh, Sometimes, you know, uh, we get the word Yahweh from that. There are four, just four Hebrew consonants which make up that word. Uh, And... Uh, and then vowels were added later from the word for Lord. Um, sorry, I'm getting a bit too complicated here for you. But I'm just trying to say that the, the first Lord here is different from the second Lord in the, in the verse. If you notice, I say to the Lord, capitals, you are my Lord. 
And so what he's saying is, I'm saying to the Lord God of Israel, I'm saying to the Lord God Almighty, I'm saying to the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, I'm saying to the one true living God, you are my Lord. You're the one that I accept has the right to rule over me. You see, he's committed to God as his Lord. Um, the one that he will put first in his life and who he will obey. You know, Jesus, when he comes and he's speaking to his disciples, he challenges them and he says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to put me first in your life. You have to put me first before everything else, before your own popularity, uh, before your own ambitions, before your own pleasures. Put me first in your life. Have no other gods before me. There was a, a song, I don't know, I think it was a Robin Mark song back uh, probably the 80s or 90s. Um, Jesus, all for Jesus. All of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender these into your hands. Um, it was a good song, but and it's easy to sing, but it's one of those songs or hymns which when you really think about it is very challenging. You know, do we really mean that? All of my ambitions, hopes and plans, I surrender to your hands. But you see, David here, he's committed to God as his Lord. He will put him first in his life. If he doesn't have him in his life, then he has nothing. He's committed to God. But the interesting thing I, I find here is that he's also committed to the people of God that the two seem to go together you know because in verse 3 he says I say of the holy people uh, some other translations have saints um, I say of the holy people the saints who are in the land and they're not a special category of people you know we know if we look at the Bible as a whole and look at the New Testament the word saint is always just used of someone who belongs to God, someone who's set apart from God. It's not a special category of super spiritual person. You know, sometimes that has come into our kind of popular culture and thinking. We think of, of someone like, you know, St. Christopher um, or St. Francis or um, St. Teresa or uh, some of these other saints. And we think, oh, there's a special category of super spiritual people. But that's not really the biblical understanding of the word. It just really means someone who's set apart from God, for God, someone who belongs to God. So he says, I say of, you could put it, my fellow believers in God who are in the land, the land of Israel, they are the noble ones or glorious ones or excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Um, he's sort of saying, look, you know these other Christians? They're great people, aren't they? Aren't they? 
Well, that's, that's what the psalmist thinks anyhow. Uh, sometimes we may have our reservations, and I'll maybe come back to that in a minute. But he's saying, I say of the, the holy people, my fellow believers who are in the land, they are great, and I, I take delight in them. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. You see, people who worship other gods, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to prosper. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods. You know, in pagan religion, people would offer sacrifices. They would come and they would pour out an offering of blood. And that's what he's talking about here. He's basically saying, I'm not going to worship any other god. Uh, I, uh, I'm not going to join with people, with the world around me, who pursue their, their other gods of power and fame and riches and pleasure and so on. I'm not going to join other people in that kind of false worship. I'm going to stick with the people who love God and want to follow him. So you see, he is committed, I think, not only to God, but also to the people of God. And I I don't really think you can be a Christian and and not be part of the family of God. Um, uh, I remember once reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a a great preacher of the 20th century. But he also um, was a very gifted doctor. As a young man, he qualified as a physician, and he was part of a practice in Harley Street, and he had a great medical career in front of him. But he recalls, and it's recorded in his biography, how he... um, was at some dinner for medics. And after the dinner, it was coming up to Christmas time, he came out from the dinner and across the road from the hotel uh, was a Salvation Army band, you know, playing some Christmas carols. And it just struck him. It came to him then with a deep conviction. He said, these are my people. These are my people. This is where I really belong. That the glittering medical career wasn't for him. But it was to serve the people of God. And this was part of God's call to him uh, to, serve, to become a pastor. You know, he, he, he saw these people as being where he really belonged. So part of being a strong and stable a mature Christian is being committed to God and being committed to his people. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Commitment to God and commitment to his people. Now, I know... I know that's not always easy. You know, I was a pastor for over 30 years. And I know that in church life, sometimes we can hurt one another. Sometimes we can disappoint one another. Sometimes we can let one another down. Sometimes we can find people within the church family that at a natural level, we just don't have much in common with. And sometimes it's... It's difficult to get along sometimes with other people. 
And that's why we need the grace of God to help us to realize that we are forgiven sinners and they are forgiven sinners and we have more in common than that drives us apart. But what will help make each of us a stable Christian is being committed not only to God, but also being committed to the people of God. So that's commitment. Commitment to God and to the people of God. Second point then is contentment. Uh, This is verses 5 to 8. Contentment with God's provision and counsel. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Um, I can remember as a young Christian uh, in a a prayer meeting, and there's always a man in uh, in this prayer meeting who who would uh, start his prayers with, Lord, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. And that was a great source of puzzlement to me because at that stage I didn't know my Bible all that well and I didn't realize that that expression really refers to uh, what happened when the people of Israel came into the promised land and when they arrived in the promised land you know the 12 tribes the land was divided up among them Uh, each tribe and then within each tribe each clan and then within each clan each family they all received a portion uh, as their inheritance that was going to belong to them uh, forever. And how that was worked out, how it was decided who got what, was that lots were cast. And and so uh, this is an expression which really refers to saying, look, um, what I have, um, uh, what I have in life, the situation I find myself in life, the circumstances I find myself in life, I'm content with that. It's, a, it's an expression of, of his contentment with what Lord, with what God has provided for him. You see? David is delighted, he's pleased, he's content with what God has allotted to him uh, and his family. Um, Jerry Bridges has, has written a little book called Respectable Sins. It, it's a book about those sins which we easily pass over and excuse and don't really recognize as sin. They're not big sins like murder or lying or adultery or something like that. Where they're kind of respectable sins. We can live comfortably with them. And one of those respectable sins he, he, he identifies as discontent of moaning and complaining and whinging. And if you read the history of the Old Testament, you find that people of Israel, when they're wandering through the wilderness, they spent most of their time moaning and complaining and whinging to Moses. I really don't know how Moses put up with it. Uh, In fact, in one place, I think Moses says to God, look, take my life, I've had it. I've had it up to here with these people. I resign. Now, he wasn't able to do that, but... You know, sometimes we miss that, that grumbling and complaining is not, it's not the way we should be living. We should be content 
being content with the circumstances in which we find ourselves in. They're maybe not what we wished for. Um, They're maybe not easy. But learning to be content. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, I have learned that whenever state I'm in therewith to be content. To be content. He was was sick. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. But he said he was content. I remember having to take a funeral once for an elderly woman, widow, uh, and uh, really she was a very ordinary person. You know, she had she left school without really any qualifications. She never held any position of influence at work or in church or anything like that. Um, she was a wife, a mother, a grandmother. Um, but you would just say she was very ordinary. Um, and I was wondering really what to say about her at the at the funeral service. And then her daughter said to me, uh, you know, my mum didn't have any great abilities or gifts or anything, but she was always very content. And I thought, you know, that's not a bad testimony to have. You know, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And here the psalmist is saying he's content with his lot in life. He's content. And he's also content with the, the counsel that God gives him, the instruction that God gives him. If you notice in the next verse, verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I mean, he, we all need direction in life. We all need to know how to live life. We, we ha- need to know how to live life without making a mess of it. And the psalmist David here, I think, is saying, look, God has given us in his word good counsel, sound instructions, right directions as to how to live the best way possible. Um, if you remember right at the beginning of Psalms, the first Psalm uh, says, Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one, who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. If you want to be strong and stable and steadfast and sure in your Christian life, then meditate upon the word of the Lord. Listen to his counsel, his instruction. Put it into practice. That's the way to stability and unshakability. Be content with your circumstances. Be content with God's counsel and his word. And then the the third principle, I think, which we find here 
verses 9 to 11 is confidence. Confidence in God's power to deliver him from the power of death. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. As David looks ahead and he sees, well, he knows that everyone, life always ends in death. But that's what lies ahead for him, for you and me, for all of us. Um, But he's confident, he says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one or your holy one see decay. He's quite confident that though he dies, that will not be the end. That will not mean uh, destruction, decomposition. That, That will not mean extinction. That will not mean the end for him. Now, In the New Testament, we find both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul quoting these verses from Psalm 16. And they apply them to Jesus. And what they're saying is, well, Jesus died, was buried. But on the third day, he rose again. That he has conquered death. And he's turned death into a doorway for those who believe. A doorway into the presence of God. The death is not the end. The death does not mean destruction. The death does not mean you, you, total separation from everyone and everything that is of any good. No, death for the believer, death for the Christian is just a doorway into the presence of God. Because Jesus died and rose again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he challenged the people there, do you believe this? Do you have this confidence in the face of death? I mean, we don't really like to think about death. But it is an inevitability. And for those who trust in Jesus Christ, it's not the end. It's a a door into the presence of God. And and you see what he says in the last verse. You make known to me the path of life, the path that leads to life. If he lives by God's word, this is the path that will lead him to life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see those lines? You will fill me with joy. It's not just that there's a little bit of joy, but there's fullness of joy. There's joy in all its dimensions, joy in all its aspects, joy in all its variety, joy in all its completeness. You will fill me with joy, fullness of joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand, eternal, everlasting, ongoing, unending, always there. 
That's how he sees his future. That's his confidence for his future. Not that he's going to be dead and buried and rot in his grave. But he will come into the presence of God. And he will enjoy fullness of joy. And everlasting pleasures. What confidence he has uh, in the face of death. What confidence he has of a future which is full of joy and endless pleasure. Now I know sometimes you know, we, would, we, we would like to know more about what heaven is like. We would like to know more about the, what the life to come is about. But, you know, there are things that we, we're not, we don't know, we're not told. But we are told this. We are told this, that in God's presence there is fullness of joy and everlasting pleasure. So the life to come is not something to be vague about and not something to be fearful of, but it's something that we can actually be confident of. Psalm 23, you know, ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, there's an old hymn which puts it, there is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign, infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. Confidence in a future beyond this life, which is full of joy and endless pleasure. So, to go back just to verse 8, he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, you know, close by, I will not be shaken. He will be strong, he will be stable, he will be sure and steadfast. His anchor will hold in the storms of life because he's committed to God and his people, because he's content with God in his circumstances and in God's word and he's confident that God will deliver him from death and bring him into his presence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that in this world which seems so confusing at times and so uncertain that we can say with the psalmist with you at my right hand I will not be shaken so give us we pray this commitment this confidence this contentment that we might be steadfast and sure as we live for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.